Hello. Hey, Simon. <laughs> Hello. Hey, Simon. It's Skyler. Hey, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. What's up, Simon? Hello. Simon. How you doing? Hey. Hello. Hello. Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. This is Conversations with Storytellers, a podcast of wisdom, thoughts, and folk and fairy tales from our elders, and I am your host, Simon Brooks. This is a meeting with professional storytellers, people who, for their work, travel about telling myths and legends, folk and fairy tales. Each storyteller shares their thoughts on our profession and gems of wisdom, and sometimes a story or two. I'm glad that you're here. Judith Heinemann and I met years ago at Sharing the Fire, the Northeastern Storytelling Conference, and bonded over stories and dark chocolate. It was at a time when I always had some on me and some other person let her know. Judith started as a poet and an actor and has gone deep with her work as a storyteller. We talk about research, books, kids, energy and the jitters, amongst other topics. Please enjoy this conversation. Judith, welcome to Conversations with Storytellers. Thanks very much indeed for being here with me today. I'm very excited. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. No, you're welcome. So Judith and I met a long time ago at Sharing the Fire, and we kind of bonded and we've been on and off friends. And I only mean that in the way that we don't see each other very often, but we've been on and off friends ever since then. Um, and it's been a glorious, it's been a glorious relationship. And and our, our main bond, I have to say, other than storytelling, is chocolate. <laughs> chocolate. <laughs> we both discovered that we have a, a deep, deep, abiding passion for chocolate. So, so what's your favorite chocolate? That's going to be my first question for you, Julia. Let's get into the deep stuff, the important stuff. What's your favorite kind of chocolate? <laughs> um. I suppose anything that's not white chocolate. Um, uh, no, I really, I like dark chocolate. I like milk chocolate. I love fudge. I love the chocolate that's in the middle of ice cream. Um, there was a cake uh, that was originally uh, made by a bakery in Long Island called Ebinger's, and it was a blackout cake, and it had delicate crumbs, yielding pudding layers, and it's pudding and mousse and chocolate, and that sends me to heaven too. So it's a combination of chocolate mousse and chocolate pudding and chocolate chocolate, but I'll have anything with chocolate. <laughs> Sounds like it. I like poetry about chocolate. I have a poem, it's called It's Not Enough. So. <laughs> I have the same thing. My wife says, you have too many chocolate bars, but they always seem to vanish very quickly, so I don't think I do. <laughs> What's your favorite chocolate? My oh my favorite that's easy green and blacks. Uh -huh. and if they want to sponsor me, I'm very happy with that. I'm not familiar. Is it a British uh, it's, brand? It's, it's European. I I used to think it was British, but I don't think it is. I think it's um I think it's Scandinavian, but I'm not 100 sure. But it's, it's definitely European, huh. and it's it's kind of fair trade and all that kind of stuff. It's um ethically sourced chocolate, which is good because unethically sourced chocolate is not good. Right. Um, but yeah, so yeah. That's anyway, let's get down to the nitty gritty of storytelling, shall we? So when 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 you were a wee lass, um, were there any storytellers in your family? Yes. So uh, my grandfather. So I have this foundation story. It's um, which you have seen. Uh, there's a story about my grandfather, Oscar Markowitz, that's called A Yiddish King Lear. And if 
you uh, it's available on YouTube. Um, Nestor Gomez has a program called 80 Minutes Around the World. It's an immigration theme program. And I did it live for him in November of 2000. Uh, um, I'm sorry, in November of 2019 um, on Lower East Side of Manhattan um, at a place called Caveat. And what's interesting is that location is pretty much ground zero for where the story really took place almost 100 years ago. And mm -hmm. so the influence was my grandfather, Oscar Markowitz, who was an actor in the Yiddish theater, and I did not remember it until many, many years later when I was a struggling actress. And I kept wondering, why was I doing this? Why was it so difficult? And truly, his voice came flooding back to me in a language I didn't understand, which was Yiddish. And I remembered all the stories he told me about acting in the theater and all these well-known personalities, Stellar Adler and the shifts and so on. And then I realized it was in my blood and I sort of came by it honestly, that he was my role model. He was the storyteller in the family. And, and that's sort of where I think my passion and my love of story was, and it was deeply embedded in the recesses of my DNA. That's really cool. Were, were there any other storytellers that you remember in your family other than your grandfather? Um, no, not to that extent. <laughs> not to okay. that extent where it was just so obvious and so blatant. Um, you know, people, I had, oh, actually that's not true. My mother's brother, um, he was quite a character. He was almost like a Damon Runyon character, if you know what that is. No. Um, <laughs> um, see Guys and Dolls. If you have ever seen the movie Guys and Dolls, you should see it. It's, um, it's all these sort of, um, pool sharks and sort of low life characters, not really gangsters, but you know, anyway, so he was, uh, he was he was a lovely man and he also regaled me with stories and he had a great voice and he sang beautifully but growing up in brooklyn he also knew a couple of the brooklyn gangsters and supposedly he spent a lot of time in pool halls so he regaled me with some of those stories so i suppose some of that became part of my dna that was my mother's brother <laughs> i like that yeah we've got one of those in, in my in um, in our family as well it's uh it's interesting to find these characters, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> so, so you do, you although you do tell personal stories now, um, yes. you started off telling folk and fairy tales, right? Well, I started off as actually as an actor. So I was doing one woman shows, and um, when I lived in Los oh. Angeles, I was one of the, I was one of the co-founders of the Los Angeles Women's Theater Festival. And I was doing a personal story, an expanded 45-minute show based on this story I just told you called The Yiddish King Lear, but it was a full-out dramatic piece. And with lighting and blocking and props and costumes and, and voiceovers and things like that. So I was doing a personal narrative in a theatrical uh, format. And then, um, and it's really interesting, when I was co-chairing co-founding the uh, Los Angeles Women's Theater Festival, Vicki Juditz and Milbury Birch were among some of the very first actors that we hired in the early 90s. Really? Milbury was in that gang? Yes, um, Milbury did Mom's the Word and it was sort of a theater piece for half an hour. Um, it was a festival for women for half an hour. Actually, my piece would have been a half an hour. So I met Milbury way back in the early 90s when she uh, lived in LA. 
And so um, there's other, if you know Karen Golden and some other storytellers from Los Angeles, I knew them then. They invited me to storytelling programs and I said, I don't do that. I was originally a performance poet and I was an actor. And then when I moved to Chicago, I wound up going to the National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee, all by myself, a whole other story. And um, I met uh, Peg O'Sullivan, who told yep. me about Celebration. I brought Celebration to Chicago for the first time. And one of the first storytellers I saw was Angela Lloyd. And she was dancing around with her sunbrella, which is an umbrella with no covering. It was open to the sun and she had different colored scarves on, you know, hanging from it and twirling around. And she was telling poetry, including poetry and stories. And I thought, oh, this is something I can do because I had just come off being a member of this poetry performance ensemble for 15 years and then starting to do my own poetry. And my two loves of theater story and poetry I saw could possibly be um, meshed together. So anyway, so when I was there, I saw Donald Davis and I saw Ed Stivender and I saw all these other wonderful storytellers and Ray Hicks. He was there at the time. And I realized, oh, my gosh, um, it just grabbed me around the neck and didn't let me go. And I realized I could take my one woman show and switch it into this genre. I could tweak it into this storytelling genre. So technically, I started telling I started in the storytelling world with a personal yeah, that's funny. So how did you how did you get into the folk folk tales and myths and legends and all that kind of stuff? Well, so then when I was in Chicago um, and I founded the Celebration and the Chicago Storytelling Guild at that time, Lauren Nimi was living in Chicago. Joe Sobel, Joseph Sobel was living in Chicago and they all came to these meetings and um, we just shared stories. And coincidentally, at that same time, um, the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago, which is the repository of Near Eastern Studies, knew I was a storyteller and was doing a, a family program for the new exhibit called Treasures from the Royal Tombs of Ur, U-R, that these artifacts from ancient Mesopotamia had just been unearthed. The bullheaded liar, the ram in the thicket or whatever. And the education director wanted Mesopotamian and Egyptian stories. And so I started doing research. And then that's when Dan Marcotte, my musician, wandered into our storytelling guild meeting. He was very young. He was just pretty much out of graduate school. And he was a bard. He was actually a bard and plays 60 instruments. And he could play the Renaissance lute. He could play the Egyptian oud, the Dumbek drum, the Kenor harp, all the instruments that would be good for um, the Middle Eastern storytelling. So we got a grant from the um, uh, uh, Illinois Arts Council. We spent a year doing research and I was asked by the director to put on the full regalia, wig, dress, the whole thing. I look like Cleopatra. And so those were the folk tales and fairy tales, the legends of ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia. So I came to do those. And at the same time, I can't remember how we were asked to do stories or Halloween stories. And I was an avid reader and I loved um, 
Grimm and Hans Christian Andersen, and I loved all these stories as a kid. And for somehow, I can't remember exactly, we were asked to do um, campfire stories. And both Dan and I loved the Grimm fairy tales. And we just started rehearsing them and getting together and telling the Grimm fairy tales. And Dan even created original bloody choruses. I would say, Dan, I need a bloody chorus in the middle of the real Sleeping Beauty. And he'd go away and an hour later, come back with a munch and a crunch on the bones and flesh, a munch and a crunch on the meat so fresh, you know, eat your daughter-in-law with rice, the real story of Sleeping Beauty, which is on our CD. And so um, then Grimm became, one of my um, touchstones. And in fact, in two weeks, I'm going to be doing two live performances after almost a year of <laughs> plus of Zooming storytelling, uh, be doing the, the Grimm stuff. So so the Grimm fairy tales, the Mesopotamian Egyptian fairy tales, and then I started getting hired to do programs. And so I read and read and read hundreds and hundreds of folk tales and fairy tales and developed a lot of different programs to do it for all ages, for little ones to seniors. And, um, and what's interesting too, there was a wonderful storyteller who actually used to work with Laura Nimi, who came from um, Minnesota, whose name was John Berquist. He was a folklorist, he was a musician, a composer. And when he lived and I lived in Chicago, we were hired uh, through a um, Rothschild Family Foundation grant to do storytelling in senior centers and nursing homes. And so we toured seniors for 10 years, um, doing a series of at least a dozen nursing homes and senior centers every year. And uh, we cook, I cooked up folk tales and fairy tales for that that were highly interactive. So some of these uh, very compromised um, nursing home residents and seniors could relate. But then when John played music, they really came alive and we integrated the music and stories and I have always had music I realized as another voice in all of the types of performances uh, that I've done so um, uh, even when I was doing performance poetry I had musicians who improvised with me and did improvisational music while I told poetry oh wow I didn't know that that's really good so you so even from the the very first thing that you did it, it sounds like music is played a, a very important role in your work. Coincidentally and sort of unplanned. Um, right. It, it really, you... I, uh, my stepfather was a professional musician. He was a trumpet player. Um, and I don't know that that has any influence. I played the violin as a kid, um, but I somehow always worked in an ensemble where there was a musician and it enhanced whatever programs I was doing. So I've always tried to incorporate it even when I was producing Telebration, I always had musicians um, who were part of the storytelling evening. And then for 13 years here, where I am in New York, mm -hmm. um, this historic community, I produced the Mohegan Colony Storytelling and Music Festival. And we did that for 13 years and always had musicians as part of. So if you're familiar with the story crafters, uh, Barry Marshall and Jerry Burns, so they yeah. used to used to come every year to the Mohegan Storytelling and Music Festival. And they're, they're, they have a wonderful way that they do music and stories and instrumentation um, as well. So you've mentioned Telebration a couple of times. So people who are listening might not really know what Telebration is. 
Um, it was actually something. I'm trying to find the guy's name now, but it was it was a it started Wait. off in Connecticut. <laughs> Peg O'Sullivan and um, Paw Paw Pinkerton um, were uh, the founders in Connecticut in 1988. And yeah, J.G. Pinkerton. I just found it right now. Yeah. And he familiarly was called Paw Paw Pinkerton, and he had a nickname. And, and so it was Peg who started it with uh, J.G. Pinkerton in 1988 in multiple sites in Connecticut. And I think they had six or eight the very first year they introduced it in different locations in Connecticut. And then I met her in 96, I believe, 96 mm. or 97, um, when I was in Chicago. And um, and that's when I went to the National Storytelling Festival and met her. And she had a little button she was wearing saying, ask me about celebration. And I did. And I learned that I it was a... a few of those buttons too, yeah. <laughs> and celebration is... It's basically held. It's pre pre preferably on on a certain date, and I can't think. Of, it's in November, if I remember it's, right. Yeah, it's usually the weekend before Thanksgiving. It's the weekend, the weekend before Thanksgiving, before Thanksgiving, but it can be like during that week. So yeah. I think this year, twenty twenty one, it's the twentieth of November. It's usually the weekend before Thanksgiving, and I always did it on a Sunday because I was near the University of Chicago, and their homecoming was Saturday, and I did not want to conflict with that. Yeah. And <laughs> That's a good good thinking. <laughs> and it was originally intended as storytelling for grown-ups. It was storytelling for adults. That was right. the, the original impetus because they said children had stories, but adults didn't. And, um, and it was the one night a year that professional tellers – were to give back to the community without benefit of pay. And that was the only way I could afford to do a $30,000 production, you know, for maybe $2,000 where, you know, I needed to uh, use for publicity and Xeroxing at that time and, and giving um, money to the space that we use different churches and different places and for food and uh, things like that. But everybody, donated their services and educated the public about storytelling for grown-ups. And 25 years ago, it was not that common. Now it's become, you know, much more, and especially yeah. with, the and with um, personal narrative and personal storytelling, it's a very much an adult type of thing, but, but then it wasn't really. Yeah, no, I, 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 I do get that. So do, do you have any favorite stories that you remember from your childhood? Uh, yes. I was an avid fan of Nancy Drew, and I loved mysteries, and I loved reading Nancy Drew. But the folktale that haunted me, that I could envision but did not remember the name, was actually a grim tale. And I remember a young girl falling down a well and coming out on the other side with beautiful flowers. And then there was all kinds of conflict. And then I ultimately found it, and it was Mother Hole, H-O-L-L-E. And um, there are many variants of it, like Diamonds and Toads, and about two girls, one very kind and one mean and selfish, and how one is showered in gold or jewels, or when she opens her mouth, flowers and jewels come out, where the other sister or the other girl in the story um, walks under an archway and tar falls on her or she opens her mouth and toads and snakes and vipers come out of her mouth. So yeah. 
the story, one of the first stories that um, I remember loving and being very interested in. And then when I found it back in the Grimm canon, I was uh, very excited about that. Yeah, it's a good story. Is that how you pronounce it? Hole? Mother Hole. Okay. I remember it. Okay. Uh -huh. Yeah, I've, I always call it Holly, but I, um, I could be totally wrong. It's not, it's, it wouldn't be the first time I was totally wrong, but I, I think Paul is probably more accurate, to be honest. Yeah, that's a good story. That's a, it is a good story. So, and you, you and, tell and that one would, now, presumably. No, I don't really. I would like to. I really should. I should go back to it and tell it, but it's not really, I have told it, but it's not really part of my repertoire, but I'd love to revisit it. And then I do remember when I was a very little girl, I went to sleepaway camp, even at a very young age, and I was sick and I was in the infirmary. And I must have been eight years old and a very handsome um, counselor. His name was Mel, I remember, blonde and blue eyed. And for some reason, he came into the infirmary. He used to read me stories. And um, he read the um, Nightingale and the Rose. And I just, that story of the um, Nightingale pressing his chest against the thorn of the rose and dying, I. I just, that's another story that was very, very early embedded in me. And I was just infatuated with this <laughs> handsome counselor, at least 10 years older than I was, um, as he read me these beautiful fairy tales. That's so neat. That's so neat. Um, did you, at this, at this summer camp, did you, did you get into performance much? Was that one of the, did you, how, how did you get up into the theater? I guess is, is a better question. Well, actually, it was much later on when I was a teenager in a different summer camp, and um, there was a, a drama teacher, and I was very fond of him, and also I was always interested in theater. I played the violin from the fourth grade until I graduated high school, and I loved it. It was a, quite a unique public school in the South Bronx that had an amazing music program where we had academic courses in the morning and orchestra all afternoon. Oh, wow. Yeah, and, and, but I realized I did not have a great ear for music. I wasn't bad, but I knew when I got to college that I would not be good enough for the college orchestra. And so that's when I got out of the pit and onto the stage. Oh. I was always interested in drama. I was always dramatic. I always loved doing recitations and poetry and theater. And, you know, I loved Shakespeare. And um, so I always, I had, I, I wanted to be an actor. I really did want to be an actor. But when I was growing up, I didn't really get a lot of family support for it. So my mother always said, you have to have something practical to fall back on. Yes. So, Show yeah. me a family that has excelled at supporting someone that wants to become an actor. There are very few and far between. I would <laughs> So, I would say. I'm a high school English and journalism teacher. And, and part of that story that I mentioned, the Yiddish King Lear, tells about the evolution of my journey teaching during the day and then acting at night, off Broadway, off off Broadway, and having sort of a dual personality, a little schizophrenic, you know, teacher, pulled back ponytail during the day, you know, tight fitting leotards and things at night going. Uh, <laughs> Uh, off Broadway and off off Broadway. So I always was wanted to act, and so um, I did combine it for many years. 
And then, uh, and then when I found storytelling, it was another avenue, another slice of this sort of dramatic life that I could pursue. So with 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 Grimm and the Magic Carpet, um, you were doing these, um, or certainly with the Magic Carpet, you were doing these Sumerian tales. What kind of research were you doing to like to to resource these to to find these tales? So so the education director of the University of Chicago's Oriental Institute, which is one of the leading resources of uh, Middle Eastern studies, uh, was my mentor. She took me under her wing. She guided us. And in fact, she gave me a list of stories that she wanted me to research. And I had professors in Sumerian literature sending me prefaces of their books before they were being published. We also did the Epic of Gilgamesh, and I must have read 11 different um, versions of the Epic of Gilgamesh. And, And at the University of Chicago's museum, the Oriental Institute is a museum as well. It's a public museum. The original cuneiform tablets that had um, chapters from the Epic of Gilgamesh were there. So I actually saw the original tablets and we even performed this program in the museum at the University of Chicago at this Oriental Institute with the original cuneiform tablets behind us and surrounded by these Lama Sioux from Persepolis and so on. And um, so she guided me and um, Dan and I read and read and read and read and we read these different stories, um, Sekhmet and um, one of the ones I like very much is called the, it has two titles. It could either, either be The Clever Thief or, um, I, I just forgot for a moment what the other one was, but it was The Clever Thief. And um, it was about, uh, the or The Treasure Thief, I think it was called The Treasure Thief or The Clever Thief. And it was about um, a pharaoh uh, who, uh, Ramses III, I believe, who um, had a treasure house of jewels and he was worried about it being stolen and hired an architect uh, to create a treasure house that was impenetrable. And supposedly this was a legend that um, Herodotus, Herodotus, Herodotus was a storyteller as well. He wrote the histories and supposedly Herodotus was a tourist in Egypt, and Herodotus was Greek, but he was a tourist in Egypt. And while he was a tourist, his tour guide, supposedly, told him this legend of the treasure thief. And so I bring that story to life from 2,500 years ago when Herodotus wrote it down in his histories. So it's a lovely, wonderful story. Oh, it has a great twist to it. And that's on our, if I may say, we have a, an award-winning CD called The Magic Carpet, Songs and Stories from Mesopotamia and Ancient Egypt. Uh, so, so that's the kind of deep dive of research that we did. And we spent an entire year reading the literature under the guidance of different professors and the education director at the University of Chicago and pouring over the exhibits in the museum, learning wow. about it, you know, from that source. Yeah. And um, and so that's where we have this repertoire of a, at least a dozen stories. And then also the um, Egyptian Cinderella is a fairly um, well-known story. It's sort of in a children's book, 
but it had a slightly different color in the original version yeah where, where the origin of the egyptian cinderella had her as possibly being a prostitute in that early early version of that story um so it's it was fascinating i love research i love history i love learning about these things so i hope that answers your question as to it does. It does. so so let's use this cinderella um as, as an example when you find a story like the the egyptian cinderella and you find out in the early early versions that she was a prostitute what's your what's your process of taking that 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 core material that you you've built up that you read about and you've been presumably taking notes on and all the rest of it how do you then turn that into a story and how do you decide which bits that you keep and which bits you discard well i work orally thank you that's a very good question that's actually a great question um i'm very in process oriented i think process is even more fascinating than the result and i i love the process the journey and i work orally um i'm sorry but i must digress so when i was back in los angeles and i was doing theater with the women's theater festival and so on there was a wonderful um producer and she uh was doing a kaylee believe it or not and i was the irish poet from the 9th to the 19th century and i remember doing very very early research on um the early bardic tradition. And one of the things that stuck with me, um, whether it's true, or I, I don't know, but bards, if they were truly bards, they were sent into a cave for a year with no pen and no paper. And they were to orally create the best poetry that they could create. And when they felt that their poetry was in perfect form, then they were given pen and paper so they could write it down. Oh, and, wow. and in a way that, is an answer to your question because it is my process. So I will read, and this is true for Griff, I will read many, many versions of these stories. I will say them out loud. I will say them out loud. And then what kind of resonates in my mouth and my ear winds up. And then as I tell it, the parts that need to be told assert themselves. The ones that don't seem to fall away. Somehow the ones that don't stick in my memory fall away. And as I say it over and over again, I pick out certain language or certain phrases or I have the imagery. And, um, and as storytellers and bards historically did, we do change things. We tweak them. It's a living uh, process. So, um, you know, once it's written down, it's sort of set in stone, but so many storytellers will do their own version of it, even when we do the Hans Christian Andersen stories. It's, you know, our own interpretation, our own take on right, it. Right. So, so I will say it and say it and say it. And then what seems, and of course, um, you have to know your audience. And so <laughs> depending on your audience, it depends on how body you want to be. And some audiences want you to be body. There are body mm -hmm. tales and, you know, whatever. And then, um, you know there are different age ranges and so you have to sort of adjust and you have to be able to read your audience and, and do that so i might have alternate endings or i might have slight phrases that maybe i would leave in or take out depending on where i'm telling you and how long does that so i mean i know it varies from story to story but let's again we'll use that egyptian cinderella so that was 
for those that don't know the Egyptian Cinderella, it's a similar length to the to the uh, French Cinderella. But how long would a story like that, or yeah, a story like that, take you to to mm -hmm. research and then bring up to the to the point of where it's ready for the stage? Well, I never think anything is finally ready because I'm well, always. You know what I mean. No, I'm deadline driven. If I have a job and I have a show, then it gets done pretty quickly. You know, it it just you know I I can I'm used to doing theater, so sometimes you have to hurt, learn a whole new show in a week. You know, or you have to step in as an understudy, or or something happens and you have to do something very very quickly. I could work 24 hours on it or 12 hours on it. You know, so in a very condensed, intense. Um, way so yeah. uh, it, certain things grow in me and um, it, it depends on you know how satisfied I am with something but it could take a year like most of the Egyptian Mesopotamian things took a year um, to really hone and make it uh, develop and the Grimm show mm -hmm. I have been performing the, the Grimm show for 20 years so with like you know I performed with Dan for 16 where we toured and we did all these kinds of things and and then on my own. So I've been telling some of these stories more than 15 years and with each telling it's slightly different. Um, but uh, you know, Margaret, I think it was Margaret Reed McDonald or some other people said, you don't own a story until you tell it 50 to 100 times. And, and when I, and I, I <laughs> workshops and you know, I mean, you could tell a beautiful story and if you're a very, um, facile storyteller and a professional teller. Sure, you could read it in the morning and tell it at night, and it probably sounds fine. But, right. but, but for me, really, if I've told it so many times, then I feel that that if I were to guide a new storyteller, I would tell them you don't really own it until you tell it twenty-five, fifty times. Yeah, yeah, that's. I I would definitely agree with that. I would. When you when you get to the point when you're about to perform on stage, whether it's a new story or a story you've been working on for a while, or a story you've been performing for a while, like you you know it's one of those hundred told stories, do you do you still get the jitters? Do you get the jitters at all? Did you ever get the jitters? Oh yes, oh, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Um, <laughs> I remember having an acting teacher. I studied acting professionally as well. And I remember having an acting teacher and I was doing a scene from Genet's The Maids. Um, and I remember we were doing it for a class and um, I must have worked on it, you know, very intensely and rather quickly, but I don't know if you have to edit this out, but he said, you were working on ass energy. And um, the, uh, the intensity of it, so, but sometimes it's the energy that, takes away the jitters because you're just like in the zone and yeah. it's like the air changes when you're really so involved in what you're doing the air change yeah i prepare i do tongue twisters i do breathing exercises i do vocal exercises before i go on stage so i have a, a, a method of preparation and sure i get a little nervous a little concerned and i probably were much was much more so earlier in my career yeah. um but but I do feel that I'm a trooper and I'm pretty safe on stage. And I have had opportunities in plays where other actors forgot their lines completely and I had to improvise or, you know, sort of run with the thing. And, and that's also pretty exciting, you know. When yeah, you it is. Live, live yeah. Yes. That's what's going to happen. So, um, I mean, I definitely do get a bit of the jitters, but I am not stage fright. Right, right. 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 
Um, if you if you start to lose an audience, which hopefully that never happens to you, but sometimes it does happen to us when we're doing a thing. Do you, do you have a trick for trying to pull them back in again? You know, like have a conniption fit, stamp your foot, and wave your hands. <laughs> <laughs> I, I well, thankfully, I can't remember when that happened recently, um, but I. When you get one's attention, sometimes it's by being quiet. Yeah. Just stopping or speaking very softly, which makes people pay more attention. But sometimes, you know, and it's hard to perform outdoors because sometimes if you're outdoors, people are not seated, they're moving back and forth. So um, I find that, again, if you have something that makes noise or, or music or maybe some sort of a costume bit or something. Um, certainly a good backdrop if you have a focal point um, yeah. while performing. Um, that helps to bring the eye to you. Uh, but sometimes you never know. You could have an unruly, completely undisciplined group of school children and you're in some sort of auditorium or whatever and all they want to do is eat candy or, or, or run around and, and there's like no hope for that. And that's it if it's ever happened to you. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, again, the, the trick that you talked about is is getting quiet. Um, if there are unruly kids, then I'll go and have a quiet word with them. Um, if the te well, I, I try, I tr I try to get to them before the teachers do because sometimes the teachers just, you know, there's like meh 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 meh, stop making an eyes, and that doesn't help at all. I don't think. And so I'll I'll go over and I'll talk to the kids who are being unruly and, and you know see if there's a way that they'll work with me on this and that they'll, you know, will you set a good example for the other kids? Cause they do look up to you, um, whether you know that or not. And, you know, I want this to be the best. I want it to be the best for you as, as a, as a listener. And I want it to be best for everybody else. And you can help me do that, you know? So there are things that I do along those lines. Um, yes. You know, and if it's a taser, that helps. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just thought of something else that I do. I also teach a workshop on this um, about bringing people literally into your story. Yeah, so yeah. I will actually sometimes perhaps bring a child up on stage with me and speak lines. So if the story lends itself to a character who speaks, I uh, I might have the whole audience. It's really good if you start getting them to do a chant or to repeat a line, and then everybody gets focused again to do that, or the old you know technique of hey ho or crick crack or something like that. Um, but I remember once I was doing a residence school, and and for some reason I don't understand teachers who make their children be so quiet or stand in a line or fold their hands or whatever. I know I was doing a program and this one little boy was, might, might have been on the spectrum or something and he was under the table and he was banging his head and he was just like banging. And I happened to have had a shaker with me. So I asked him if he would be my rhythm section. So I gave him the shaker and I asked him to just shake it on a certain rhythm while I was telling the story. And it, it worked really well. So I think that if there's a way to engage a student, give them a task, have them be part of your story, um, that could work. Um, you could also have a pitfall of, you know, you think you're getting somebody who's going to cooperate with you on stage and they're just a big cut up and all they want is, you know, all this attention. So, yeah. you know, it's not always perfect, but, but if you have these techniques and if you're open and you're much more tolerant of this sort of other behavior, 
form teachers are, um, you can pretty much win them over, I think. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. So talking about shakers and stuff, and the fact that you played the violin when you were younger, I'm, I'm assuming that you don't play it anymore, or do you? No, I wish I did. Um, when I lived in Chicago, I actually went to the Old Town School of Folk Music and had this fantasy that I could be a country fiddler and like tell stories and fiddle a little bit, you know. And I did take a few, like fiddle one and fiddle two, and um, I enjoyed it very much. But again, I don't have a very good ear. And when you play fiddle, you really are not supposed to use music. Um, I read music, so my teacher was very kind and gave me the score, and I could read it and I could do it. But, but I realized I couldn't. Um, but uh, I, I try to bring sounds and other instruments, or the djembe, the the, you know, it's also known as a finger piano, but that's not the right term for it. Um, or right. shakers or noisemakers. Yeah. Uh, Right. And um, so I do, I love collecting exotic instruments. And when I travel around the world, I do bring back um, culturally interesting different instruments and I try to incorporate them uh, if I can. No, so do you, so I've seen pictures of you holding drums, but do you, do you actually play them or was that? Um, I, well, when I was doing uh, work with Dan, I did actually, because there was a part of um the Mesopotamian and Egyptian stories uh, where there was, he was playing something else and I was doing a little bit of drumming. And I even have an Egyptian frame drum. Uh, I um, rubbed it. There was a way that it, it incorporated with the story. And I create rhythmic chants, even in the um, Cinderella, on the Egyptian Cinderella, she does three things. And I always look for a way to create an audience participation within the story. So if I can remember it, she washes the linen, she grinds the grain, and she weeds the garden. And so I created a chant and I have the audience do it. And that that's, could be a drum beat or your hand of, cause she slaps the fabric on rocks in the Nile river. And that's how she was washing the linen and people used okay. to you know, rub clothing on rocks. So it was like wash the linen, weed the grain, weed, wash the linen, weed the garden, grind the grain, wash the linen, weed the garden, grind the grain. So um, if I had some sort of a drum, I might, I could just use my hands, but if it was more effective to have that sound, you know, I would use that within it. Um, nice. And, and then for accents, like um, if, uh, if the uh, top of the chest in the juniper tree crashes, I would maybe take a mallet and bang a drum so that I have that sound effect, you know, when the lid just crashes shut. Do you, do you use vocal sound effects much? Um, what do you mean? Well, like, for example, if you're pouring a glass of wine, you might be like... Or, you know, if a tree's falling down, it might be... Do you, do you have a, or is that just a boy thing? No, no, no. So when I do the real Sleeping Beauty and she creeps up the staircase and she sees a door she's never seen before and she opens it, it goes, the door opens. So occasionally I will use it. And, um, you know, or the lady beckons her and I'll change my voice. Come in, my dear, you know. So, um, you know, so I, I do use it, but very sparingly. 
Right. That's cool. Everyone has their own technique, which is, you know, I mean, they're, you know, Elizabeth Ellis doesn't do any of that, mm-hmm. but she can, you know, the way that she tells her story is just, you, you know, you just fall into her lap to listen to them. They're amazing. Yeah, yeah. I love what you just did. I love the, the wine and I love the sounds that you were making. <laughs> I think that's great. <laughs> well, yeah, I was just me as a kid, used to imitate sounds all the time. I used to watch all the cartoons and try and mimic them, all the sound awesome. effects that they would use. Um, is there anything that you know now that you wish that you knew when you first started? <laughs> in storytelling? Yeah, um, in storytelling, yeah. Um, not sure. I'm not sure. Um, I, I, I'm not really sure. What, what if I knew then what I knew now? Maybe what, what the thing that surprises me, I mean, I'm con- the journey has surprised me tremendously. Um, and uh, Becoming a storyteller? Well, where it has taken me, you know, where you create, you know, as a storyteller you or an actor, you create something out of nothing. You create something out of complete thin air. And um, my storytelling has taken me to Japan and China and Ireland and England, and it's fascinating, you know. So I wouldn't, I didn't know any of this when I started out. So it's been an interesting look back to say, oh, I didn't even know that this is the possible place that storytelling could take me. So it's been a delightful surprise. It's not anything I would have known in the very beginning. Um, but maybe, you know, that, that maybe had I known other tellers who had gone elsewhere, um, maybe I would have tried to pursue it sooner. But, you know, um, it, it happened. And I'm completely in awe of, of where this journey has taken me. It's it's a delight, a surprise. I hope my journey continues. And uh, Dude, we're not going to end the interview just like that. That sounds like you're ending the interview right there. Right, right. I hope it continues to do so. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> so, um, have, have you had any like majorly challenging moments in your storytelling that have, have you know looking back on them now that you found that there's this you've learned from that like really bad situation you know for example when I told when I opened up a set with Edgar Allan Poe's Black Cat five people walked out and I learned that I should not have opened up with a black cat, but I should have gained the audience trust beforehand. <laughs> you know, so have you have you done anything like that? Have you or, or something happened at a at a gig that you've like recovered from and, and learned from that? Um and you can say no. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm, you know, it could be the old brain just can't remember it, but um, I'm just trying to think. Um, I, I think there might have been one of the um, Mesopotamian programs where um, usually the audience who comes to these programs are very primed. They're, they're knowledgeable, they're interested, they, you know, it's for a particular program. And I think maybe once there's a very long and convoluted story that I start with, and then Dan does this fabulous, fabulous story song about how to make a mummy. It's brilliant, uh, this song that he created. And this is authentic research. There are seven stages in how to make a mummy. And okay. motions with it, you know, you wrap the mummy, you wrap, 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 and that's how you make a 
honey. And then, you know, you stick a little, a little hook in your nose, a little iron hook in your nose, and you scrape out the brain, scrape, scrape, scrape. Anyway, it's a winner. People walk out of our shows singing this song. And I think we should have started with it. So I think had I had we started with it, and then I went into this more convoluted story, um, the temperature in the room would have been different. And we always bring it back at the end. So maybe that was one particular audience where perhaps, you know, had we gone right into the song, um, we would have had them a little bit more engaged at the beginning. But once we bring out that song, it's magic. <laughs> It's really quite amazing. That's brilliant. But, um, yeah. So yeah. some of the songs that you, you know that you think are like really simple, that you know they end up being something that is really powerful at the same time as well, in the I way mean, that it draws people in. We we were hired very gratefully for the Chicago Public Libraries had a summer reading program, and they were very supportive of of professional storytellers and. Um, they would often tie in a theme to a museum, a local museum. And um, Dan and I were awarded several of these summer reading programs. And, and one of them, by the way, King Tut exhibit was at the Field Museum. We wound up being hired. We did 40 shows in four weeks of the, oh, magic, of the magic Carpet, uh, three shows a day at 11, 2, and 6. I mean, it was incredible. And then um, we that were just... Hard work. We were just so lucky that the magic carpet fit their theme that summer the egyptian theme so so judith what when you're in this whole world of storytelling what really lights up your eyes what floats your boat um well again i i love telling personal stories i love engaging you know it's been so long during COVID that you're really in front of a live audience so yeah. the energy of being in front of a live audience and hear them take the journey with you and gasp at moments or um i i hate um slasher movies i do not like scary horrible movies but i love to make an audience jump <laughs> when i tell a scary story or a grim tale or a jump tale so that what floats my boat is the live in the moment interaction, a visceral response back and forth, that partnership with the audience and how they so really shape the story that it's very often their energy that makes the story new and fresh and different with every telling. And so that's what floats my boat and I can't wait to get back to life. I have to say the internet and Zoom has been a remarkable door opener in that we can have people from all around the world participate. And it's right. so wonderful to share those different voices. But I suppose that live, that's my love of theater too, just being in the moment and being live in front of an audience with some sort of a connection. No, that's great. Let's let's talk about that the whole live streaming and all that kind of stuff, because this is this is something that we've, all performers, uh, you know, not just storytellers and actors, but like all performers have had to deal with um, since March of 2020, 2020 and, and we're now in October of 2021. Um, how have you dealt with it? Is it something that you, and we don't have to get into the technical side of it, but like the actual, <laughs> the performance side of yeah. it, how have you tackled that? Um. You know, with my very first uh, time 
having to do something on uh, Zoom or I think I was actually using QuickTime. I had to record a story for Theater in Exile uh, run by wonderful director Mara Mills. And I had to record myself in front of the camera. And, and you know, I'm so technologically challenged that that overwhelms me. But the actual process, I mean, I've done um, movies and television. And so being in front of a camera is something that I do have experience with. But when I have to deal with the technology and turn on my computer or get the picture right, I am completely devastated. It's just overwhelming. But the actual zooming and sitting here and realizing that I have to look into this little green dot, um, it took some getting used to. It really did take getting used to at the beginning. It's very different when you're on a set and you ignore the camera and the cameraman is who's responsible for shooting you properly or the sound guy is responsible for you to sound, you know, uh, really good. Uh, doing my own uh, technology is is not great, but the actual sitting down now, like talking to you um, or telling a story online, um, was a learning curve, but not insurmountable. Yeah, yeah. So, so the difference between you know working with a TV crew, you know, or being on stage with an audience. You know, the TV crew, the cameraman, the sound people, you know, if there's a director there, you know, they're all part of, they can be the audience, if even if they're the only people in the room. Whereas now, when we're doing it on Zoom, invariably we're on our own. We're not, you know, we might have, you know, you might have your husband sitting in the room with you. Um, I don't know. Or maybe that's a, that would be a distraction for you. But we are, we do, we do it. Right. No, he's not. A, he's usually far gone. I don't have him with me. When you see him. Right. There was something I did learn. So I'm used to standing up and telling stories. And in the very, very beginning, I think maybe one of the Hans Christian Andersen stories I told two summers ago, I think I did the first one standing up. And then I realized that this genre really allows you to just sit and be a talking head. So that it is a more casual, close, intimate medium than I think mm -hmm. I understood. So that I learned that it's okay just to sit at your desk. You can be animated. You could tell. You could use accents. You could change your voice. But you didn't have to stand up. And I think that I learned in this medium of being yeah. all alone in my room with just this computer on and, you know, having to look into the camera and uh, that you should just sit still and um, be able to be as real and connected as you can and you could bring it down. So uh, yeah. that's what I learned. It's, it's the difference between doing stage, cinema and television. And this is television. It's a small box. And so your gestures and movements have to be smaller um, right, but but that this is a very informal and casual um, uh, experience, and that the audience has been educated also, I think, by watching uh, so many Zoom programs that this is now acceptable to just be casually chatting, talking, and to be as real as possible. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think the audience has come a long way, um, and I, and I think also the that that's especially true of of young people who have been like you know 
cast into Zoom and Google Meets and on all that kind of stuff um, for classrooms, right? And you can't always mute them, or you couldn't at the beginning at least, right? And so they had to learn to, you know, be quiet and listen in, in a completely different way that, than it would be in the classroom. You know, you can't whisper to people sitting next to you. <laughs> Because the people, you know, there aren't anybody, there's nobody sitting next to you. And if you try and whisper to someone online, everybody else can hear it. There's no like, which is, it's, it has, it's been an interesting, an interesting ride for sure. I've actually seen some very successful theatrical Zoom programs. Uh, some of my friends are in theater companies and they have actually translated a play. They've done a play online and it's kind of very clever where they might have a prop that they pass, you know, here and you sitting next to me picks it up because you have one in your house to do it. So they've, they've figured out a way to make it work uh, a little more theatrically. But I think in the storytelling world, we have adjusted to sitting down and just speaking, um, you know, in a, in a, in this sort of, you know, sort of mid chest up uh, position. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I've also found that I, I mean, I I still so that for me, I've I've done I still do a lot of my stuff standing up, but I have you know I have a separate camera which is raised up on a tripod for when I'm standing up when I'm watching the shows that I'm in, you know, watching the other performers, I go to my laptop which is at my eye level when I'm sitting down, so I can I kind of do both. Um, so, but yes, there is the ability to to perform. I, I like having my chest open to to get the breath right have, right. You, have you done any live performances since you know in-person performances yes. since? I, so a year ago halloween i did right. uh, a grim show at mm -hmm. our local library that's down the road and it was outdoors and so that was october of 2020 and so that was a live experience and people brought their chairs they actually used paint and made circles and people sat within those circles so, so that was one and then um when i was just in chicago uh three weeks ago margaret burke does an outdoor program called backroom stories which she used to have in a restaurant but this was outdoors and so she knew i was coming to chicago and she was gracious enough to invite me to perform live. So this is just a month ago when Megan Wells was there and a few other people. And I got to tell a personal story on a little improvised stage with a red velvet curtain behind me to a very nice audience of about 60 people there. And we had friends who were actually visiting from Detroit who came along that night. And so it was very thrilling. So. Uh, this was a personal story, so it was a different experience, and it was wonderful. Um, so that was two in the last year and a half of telling a, a live in-person story, and it was very safe, and it was outdoors, and it was wonderful. Did you find that your telling has been your in-person telling with an audience has been affected by doing this Zoom stuff for about a year and a half, two years? Um. I, I don't know. Um, I hadn't been thinking about that. Um, yeah. had, do you find that that has been true for others? I found it's true for me because I, I used to move around an awful lot. You know, yes. I used to bounce all over the place um, yes. when the story allowed for it. And I have found that I've become a lot more sedentary. <laughs> I see. 
I see. I've been sitting down, you know, you know, mentally sitting down and performing and not moving around as much as I might have done, not using the lower half of my body as I might have done in the past. Well, that's very interesting. Yeah. 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 I, I was just... halfway through a show and I was like, wait, there's this thing that I used to do. So do you what use so do you use a mic like um you know a, a headset yeah i use a headset lavalier i mean uh, i use a headset or wireless yeah yeah so i don't usually i'm usually standing behind a microphone on a pole so okay. i'm not running around a lot there's there's an occasion i'd like to do it more i'd like to have a headset but that's not usually how i perform so i'm sort of in this one space anyway um yeah okay all right so how do you feed yourself artistically? I'm sorry, say it again. How do you feed yourself artistically? <laughs> Lots of chocolate. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's the mental thing. <laughs> um, I, uh, well, I like immersing myself in um, attending you know, well, like when I was, when it was live, I would attend the theater and uh, go to performances and, um, you know, see if I can interact with colleagues, uh, get together and do things like that. Um, so how I feed myself as an artist is to uh, be open to other um, experiences that have to do with all kinds of art forms. I also love going to museums and I, and you know, creative with my hands as well. So I've taken up a hobby during, um, you know, resurrected an old hobby of making earrings underneath COVID. So yeah, um, I've seen some of those earrings. They're really kind of cool. We're on uh, only audio, but I'm wearing my some pumpkins that I made today. I like those. But I like to recycle and repurpose, and it's very hard to throw things out when I could see another creative and artistic life for them. So my craftiness, you know, doing crafts and things like that, right. my hands actually feed my poetry or my storytelling or stories grow out of that. So I think trying to be as creative and surrounding myself with art um, mm -hmm helps feed my artistic soul. I read a lot too, you know, still reading and, uh, or if I can, going to museums, um, which are opening up again. Uh, when I was just in Chicago, we went to the opera live. And I went to my first play at the Goodman Theater in a year and a half. So that that helps to, to feed my, and, and doing things, even rehearsing, um, feeds my artistic soul. What about you? Uh, me? Oh. I, I read a lot as well. Um, most of it's folk and fairy tales, but I, I do some other. I do some art, art stuff as well every once in a while. So, so do you still read those the mystery novels that you read as a kid now, or do you find have you found different genres that you like to read? Well, I'm a big fan of Jack Reacher of the Lee Child. Um, yeah. In fact, I've read every one of them, and I'm on the waiting list for the new book that's coming out. But my husband and I both love mysteries. We own over 750 mysteries. And we used to have a card catalog because we had this fantasy we were going to lend them out and get them back. And I think in the beginning we lent them out, but we didn't get them back, so we don't lend them. But I have whole collections of Nero Wolf or Parker or 
whatever. And, and all of these on my shelves, I have thousands and thousands of books, but we love mysteries. We take them out of the library. My husband is much more, um, uh, he, he, he's a more, well, it's not a vociferous reader, but he's, he can read much faster and he, ha and he can finish more books than I can. And um, he loves, he reads everything. I mean, now he's into graphic novels and, and they're fascinating. We just read crumbs and um, he just read the very, I can't remember the name of it. It's a trilogy, but it was supposedly the very first um, graphic novel written and it was in three volumes. So uh, he will read nonfiction fiction, but he was always a mystery book. And he's the one who really turned me on to reading mysteries. So um, I still read mysteries. And it's funny, um, our library has books that they're um, discarding. And they had a couple of Nancy Drew mysteries there. And I picked them up to send to my great niece. So I would like to get her you know, started on them as well. I asked her mother and she said, yes, she would like to have them. So they're ready to that, yeah, that's really fun. So, so the mystery that we think is the best mystery of all time is Daughter of Time by Josephine Tay, T-E-Y. And she's British. And I believe she only wrote three books. And um, she wrote Brett Farr and uh, something else and Daughter of Time. And I think you'd like it very much, and I highly recommend it. Well, I might have to go to my local library to find it and read it. I'm not... Yes. I, I'm not a big mystery write, reader, but um, I, I do read them every once in a while, and I always enjoy them. So this, um, but the, the, what the subject matter of this is, it is trying to prove that Richard III did not kill his nephews. And so oh. it's a historical mystery with real research, but it's a mm. lot of fun. Uh, the premise is that a detective has broken his leg and he's in the hospital, and he says that he could look at a face and he can tell you whether that person is innocent or guilty. So his friend comes with all these photos, some contemporary, some old and you know classic, and he brings, she brings the picture of Richard III, and he doesn't know it's Richard III, and he says, innocent. And then when he starts doing research, it's a wonderful mystery called Daughter of Time. So you might- oh, I'll have to look that one up. That's, that does sound really good, actually. So if, if there was a storyteller that you've not met, living or dead, that you could meet magically, who would that storyteller be? And what would you ask them? Hmm. I suppose, um, I'm sure there's a better, more um, in-depth answer than this. So if I were to meet uh, a storyteller, living or dead, I would probably like to have a, a conversation with Jakob, uh, Jakob and Wilhelm Grimm, the brothers Grimm. Ooh, I like that. Even though I have done research and I know that they uh, collected these stories where young uh, women came to them, uh, actually in French salons, that these young women were telling stories like a storytelling um, guild meeting in a way, entertaining each other. They didn't go out and get the stories from the peasants. Um, I would still like to know maybe what their favorite stories are. And oh, wow, yeah. goriest and bloodiest stories. And if they like the ones I like, did they like the juniper tree and the real sleeping beauty and the children play at slaughtering as much as I do? Wow, that's so cool. That's really cool. I'd, no one's actually said the Brothers Grimm. I like that idea a lot. That's a really cool answer, yeah.
I'd like to pick their brain. And maybe if I were so bold, I might even do one of their stories for them and see what they think about my interpretation. <laughs> I know, because you would be bringing a completely different lens to it, wouldn't you? Uh-huh. Uh, if they could time travel, it would be this uh, 21st century, you know. Well, that's what we say, actually. That's a little blurb on the back of our CD. Um, so, so we would like people to... Um, uh, gain a new bloodier perspective on your childhood fairy tales. And this mayhem is accompanied by music skillfully sung and evocatively played on Renaissance lute set to 16th century ballad tunes, complementing 19th century German stories and transformed through Judith and Dan's 21st century intellects and interpretation. Wow, I like that. That's a really good... So, uh, yeah, revisit your childhood through the lenses of blood-spattered spectacles. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ask you one more question. This is going to probably be the toughest question. Okay. You ready? What's your favorite breakfast? Where would your favorite place be to eat it? And who would you eat it with? <laughs> uh, I'm such a creature of habit. Um, to be truthful, every morning I have Dannon's coffee yogurt with raw flaxseed and um, bran. And I have developed quite a taste for coffee. Uh, but if I am indulging, I actually love a breakfast buffet. And I love grazing. And, you know, have a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And uh, I would, I used to love Eggs Benedict and, mm, yeah. uh, you know, with hollandaise sauce. And uh, I like creamy things as well. So French toast is pretty good too. I, you know, and, and whom would I have it with? I think that, honestly, I don't get to see my children that much. So I would love to have a brunch with my adult children and my husband and being able to uh, share share that kind of breakfast together, whether we're out at a restaurant or... Uh, Where in the world would you take them to have this hollandaise? Well, it's Benedict. They're, they're, um, because of COVID, you really can't go to buffets anymore. But well, pretend that COVID's gone and we're all back in... in, in I, I would have to find a restaurant. I, there was a restaurant in... Well, what I think about is I have cousins who live in Florida at these different um, residence you know, complexes, and they have a clubhouse. And the clubhouse has this very elaborate brunch where you could, where I remember going once or twice. It's not an everyday thing, um, but uh, but but the the panoply of the food was extraordinary and you can go a little crazy i go a little nuts with a bucket <laughs> but, but i love french toast and i love omelets and i love sushi and i love you know have all these things together so so maybe a, a lovely restaurant that serves a buffet brunch but on the other hand i do make my husband makes a terrific omelet and um you too simon if you're ever in the neighborhood please come over for brunch and and so even having a brunch in my own home um, of uh, a really nice omelet with mushrooms and onions and garlic mm. and cheese, uh, a couple of eggs, 
whipped up together would be would be really terrific. So that'd be great. Well, Judy, thanks so much for spending this time with me. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks for sharing your life and your experience with our listeners here. I hope well, they enjoyed it as much as I do. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Thanks again, Judith. Take care. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Judith Heinemann. If you did enjoy this podcast, be sure to check out other episodes. And if you think I should interview a certain folk and fairy tale myths and legends storyteller, <gasps> send me an email. You can find me and my work on Facebook and on my website, Simon Brooks Storyteller, and on Instagram, Simon M. Brooks. Diamond Scree, yep, that's me, the English fella and storyteller. A shout out to Chris Jed for creating and recording and letting me use this wonderful music for my podcast. His band is called Blackpool Mecca. Check those dudes out, they're pretty darn good. You can help keep this podcast alive and support my craft by becoming one of my Patreons and paying anything from a dollar for an episode that you enjoyed or to a regular monthly subscription. In return, you get extras, early release and exclusive content on my work. www.patreon.com forward slash Simon Brooks. If you do become a patron, I'll mention your name on the next podcast. If you don't want to become one of my patrons, that's okay. I understand it. We're all in crazy times right now. Um, if you don't join the tribe, then do something that you could do, please. Leave a review on Podbean, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, wherever you found this episode. It doesn't take long and it helps. Not just me, but others find and enjoy this podcast too. Thanks for being here with me. I know that there are a lot of other places you could be. I really appreciate it. Until next time, be healthy, be happy, and share the stories you love. Cheers. Simon out. It's, it's just, just a story. story. <laughs> just a story. Yeah.